Okay, I'm glad to welcome Dr. Joe Gath uh, to share with us a little bit about uh, what his experience has been uh, with, you know, over the last few months with this pandemic and just kind of offer some broader perspective. As I shared with you, Dr. Gath is an infectious diseases specialist uh, in Houston, Texas, who is in private practice. Uh, and I'll let him share a little bit more with that. Uh, with that, I'd say uh, welcome, Joe. How, how, first of all, how are you doing? Thank you for asking. I appreciate it. We are, uh, first of all, I'm doing well and I'm healthy. It's a very uh, concerning time, I guess, for everyone here in medicine. And I think one of the things that, uh, that the, uh, your audience needs to realize is that while us physicians are out there uh, trying to spearhead what to do about this epidemic, it's also very hard on our families because we're actually putting them uh, on the forefront too. So when you talk about our first responders, you talk about entire families and the concern is not just uh, what I'm doing out there, but what my wife is doing and those that are around me. So I say that to say that uh, have uh, have prayers for the first responders, but also the families that support them because we couldn't do it without, without our backups. They're putting their lives on the line with us. Absolutely. And those are just such critical uh, observations to make and things for us to be thinking about. That said, why don't you share a little bit with us about yourself, your background, uh, and what uh, your practice in medicine is, is about? I'm a board-certified infectious disease physician. I've been in private practice since uh, the early 80s in Houston, and I have uh, uh, an inpatient and outpatient infectious disease practice where I take care of patients both in the hospital and as an outpatient. My uh, biggest Part of my practice is taking care of patients that are HIV infected. I have about 3,000 patients in my practice that I take care of now in the Houston area uh, with HIV infection. And, and I think uh, the interesting part of that is that gives me somewhat of a unique perspective on this particular pandemic because I live uh, through the HIV pandemic. And in point of fact, it's... Uh, uh, it was uh, similar at that time when we, in the early 80s, when we didn't know what the disease was and everyone was panicking, not sure exactly what to do. And so I hope to share some of that unique perspective that we did back in the 80s with HIV that may have some relevance to the epidemic now. So if you could just give in a, a short summary, what does an infectious diseases doctor do exactly? Well, that's a real good question. And the answer is a lot of things depending on uh, what the circumstances are. Some infectious disease physicians take care of patients in the hospital, as I do. Some infectious disease physicians are epidemiologists. Those are the people that track infections uh, throughout, uh, throughout the uh, cities and the country to see where they're going and who's at risk. Some infectious disease physicians are researchers uh, that are looking for newer ways to treat, to treat infections. And some of them are uh, in academics attempting to put all of the information together to not only train new physicians, but also to try to uh, uh, make some academic uh, organization, if you will, in the things that we learn. And so I guess I would be one of the one of the in the trenches infectious disease uh, physicians that um, that are out there directly taking care of patients. I think it's also important for your audience to know that, unfortunately, I'm a dying breed. Uh, not many people are going into the field of infectious diseases anymore uh, simply because it's not one that you can uh, 
uh, really earn a living with. It has no procedures uh, and things like this. All we do is uh, can earn a living seeing patients. And because of that, uh, our academic institutions are not turning out infectious diseases physicians as they had in the past. And many of the uh, programs can fill less of their seats. Uh, only half of their seats uh, in their classes. And um, my concern is what the future may hold. If there's not many of me coming out and there are going to be more issues like this pandemic coming out uh, in the future, we're not going to have the manpower to uh, to address it. Uh, you know, and we're already having manpower issues even with this one. It's going to be particularly more concerning down the line when these things continue to happen. Yeah, so doc, that that's you know it, it's it, it's the reality, and and you are right. Uh, the 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 shortage of people who are even going into STEM fields on a broader basis is is significantly less than what the demand is going to be in the future. And to talk about an area of specialty like yourself, uh, and what I'm even more concerned about is what happens with that knowledge gap or loss, because at some point you're going to want to hang them up. And if there's not enough people who were around in the 80s to understand how you dealt with, you know, the HIV crisis and enough people around who might have been around in the early 2000s uh, dealing with the SARS crisis and so on and so forth, that knowledge gap that then exists, even if we just started today, turning out physicians, the length of time it takes to get them trained uh, much less have enough experiences. So that is something uh, quite, quite concerning. But that said, d- could you describe what the experience, what have you and your colleagues spent the last 45 days or 60 days or so doing, evaluating, and then maybe bring us closer to following the outbreak or, or the onset of the disease on, on the U.S. side of the, of the equation? Well, that's a good question. We've spent the last 45 days trying to organize ourselves in a situation where the information and the needs that we have to effectively organize ourselves have not been there. Uh, the good news is that our Infectious Society of America has almost on a daily basis kept us up to date on what looks like relative inf- uh, relevant information on the epidemic, but unfortunately trying to um, get that relevant information in the clinical practice has not, has not been where it needs to be. For example, uh, we knew the epidemic was increasing in the United States and we knew that we needed to figure out who it was, but we had no ability to test people to figure out where it was, and the Infectious Society of America could not make that happen. And so we're sitting back waiting for someone to give us the tools that we need, and those tools were never forthcoming. Mm-hmm. And so the frustration on our standpoint is like sitting at your house waiting for a hurricane to come, and somebody says, you know, need to go get some bottled water and a candle and a lantern, but there are none of those available. Oh, they'll be coming, but they never came, and they still haven't come. The second thing trying to get us organized is with our little band of people out there wanting to take care of patients, we don't have the equipment that we need in order to be able to not put ourselves in harm's way. 
it takes an average time for me to get a simple mask to put on my face, 10 to 15 minutes to be able to walk in to see a patient and walk out because the masks are on lock and key because there's not enough masks. And so the frustration is we want to do something, but we cannot do anything because we're not being given the tools that we need in order to try to get ready for this impending storm. And that is very frustrating to us on the front line at this point in time, knowing what needs to be done and handicapped that we can't do what needs to be done. Wow. Now, okay, that, that's all a lot to process. So it's given give me really uh, something to think about, uh, you know, what that's been. I'll actually, since you made that point, you know, we're sitting here on, it's a weekend and finally, more recently, more tests have become available. And, uh, and, and I'm no, by no means an epidemiologist and I don't want to be in the business of speculating. However, uh, I believe that there's a strong likelihood that coming out of this weekend where we've now had, you know, two or three days of testing in Houston, for example, where a number of people have been able to be tested that we previously were not able to. Uh, there's a possibility that because so many more tests are being done, we could see a significant spike in the numbers coming at us as we go into this week coming forward. What happens next if that does occur? And therein lies problem number two. So I get the test that I would like to have. And Thank goodness we're seeing more places in Houston. I'm working with Dr. Joseph Barone at, at one institution where Sheila Jackson Lee is spearheading us being able to do drive-through testing. And just this past weekend, we were able to do 750 tests at this point in time and waiting for some of those results to come back. But this is back to building an infrastructure. So you drive through and get the test done, and you're positive. What am I supposed to tell you to do? Where do you go? Which hospitals are going to be equipped to handle someone with this particular infection? If I tell you to go home, where do all the people in your house go get tested? Where do I tell you? Are you supposed to go isolate yourself at your house? Well, I have a two-bedroom apartment and four people. How does that work? And so this is back to not being prepared. I don't know what to tell you to do or where to go or who is going to see you once you're positive. Hmm. And that remains true to date right now. The hospitals aren't ready. Uh, hospitals have four or five isolation rooms and no more. So once four people go in there, where are the other 10 going to go? If we don't have enough gowns for people to see, how's a nurse going to come in and see you? How's a respiratory therapist who is at very high risk of getting this disease because they're in there with you with breathing treatments going to be able to take care of you at this point in time? And that's to be a one-on-one -on -one kind of thing. We are not ready for any of that at this point in time. And so while I want to have the test done, my next concern is what to do with that test and where are you going to go get your care? This is back to not being prepared for what is happening at this point in time. Yeah. And, and with those tests, I don't know what the exact science uh, of it is. For what it's worth, my undergraduate degree is actually in biotechnology. So I, I do have some familiarity with RNA viruses. Um, and to that end, would you, could we talk a bit about the science of the disease itself? 
Uh, what is coronavirus? Why is it called coronavirus? Well, that's a good place to start. Coronavirus is actually was founded in 1965. And people who know coronavirus is the leading cause of simply the common cold. And we didn't think very much about it since that over that time because it essentially is a common cold. People got it, you got over this, and it was not a real big deal. All of that changed in 2003 when an epidemic happened in China with the coronavirus. And what we knew in 1965 was coronaviruses, while living in humans, also lived in other mammals, especially bats. And we didn't worry too much about that until we realized that the virus in the bats can recombine with viruses in other animals and come out something come out something different. That's what we commonly call a zoonosis. A zoonosis is a disease that can affect animals and come back out and infect humans. The classic zoonosis that we have is influenza. Influenza comes out differently every year, and you have to get a new flu vaccine every year because the disease goes out and recombines with a different animal species and comes back out. The people listening to the podcast will understand our swine flu. You've heard about the swine flu, haven't you? Absolutely. Okay, well, the swine flu is called swine flu because the virus went into pigs and came out something somewhere different. We've had avian flu because it went into birds and came and came and, and came out somewhat different. Yeah. Well, in two thousand and three, the coronavirus that primarily lived in bats combined with a an unusual animal called a civet, a Himalaya civet, and combined and came back out to affect man, mankind in China. And we call that SARS-1, or Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome 1. And that was an epidemic in China primarily. It spread to 37 countries and affected, oh, maybe about eight or 9,000 people. A few people got in the United States, but not many. So that's why people didn't pay too much attention to it. But people that knew about infectious disease and virology paid a lot of attention to it because we told ourselves in 2003 when this epidemic was happening is that we were lucky it didn't get here. And it was only a matter of time before it might get here and we needed to prepare. So why you say we had two or three months to prepare for this? We've actually had 17 years to prepare for it, but nobody paid attention. The second time it came out, it came out after a bat, a bat species of coronavirus combined with a camel species of coronavirus in the Middle East. And that was called Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. That happened in approximately 2000, uh, 2013. And... Uh, that ended up uh, causing that syndrome, but it didn't go too far in the Middle East, so we didn't think much of it, but we told ourselves it's only a matter of time uh, when it's going to happen here. Well, what's happened with this new one, coronavirus, we call it Mm COVID-19. COVID-19 means coronavirus infectious disease 19 came out in China. In December, we think the bat coronavirus in China combined with perhaps a snake virus 
and came out to begin to infect humans. And this is the one that's now become our pandemic. It's also called Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome 2 because it's the second one. The first one was in China that we said that number one, this is now number two. And so I say all that to say a couple of things. One, we in the Pexis community and the Baraji community with SARS-1 that happened in China knew it was only a matter of time before it's gonna get here. That's the first thing. The second thing is, this one has become very potent and affects humans. And the third thing to be uh, worried about is that it's going to happen again. And so while we're getting through this and going through this, the reality is it's going to happen again. Is it gonna happen next year, two years, 10 years? We don't. We can't predict that. We don't understand why sometimes it comes out like this and sometimes not. And so for your listeners, that's sort of the story of the coronavirus, but it is a sort of what we call a canary in a coal mine. It needs to be our wake up call. And unfortunately, uh, it took something to happen on our shores for us to begin to pay attention and to realize that the infrastructure to be able to take care of an acute public health emergency such as this is not here at this point. It's here, and that's a very, very, very big concern. I hope that explains a little bit about the virus and where we are and why we call it uh, what it is. And it's it's something that, that hopefully we'll learn our lessons about not just vaccines, not just treatment, obviously all important, but the importance of what to do when somebody pushes the alarm bell that SARS number three is on its way, that we are ready to, as a community, as a society, as a healthcare infrastructure, that we are prepared to know exactly what we're gonna do, who's going to do what, and where things are gonna happen. It's very, very important for our community, our society, that we, once we get through this one, that we're ready for the next one. Absolutely. No, your explanation was fantastic. Uh, and I think it's definitely painted a clearer picture of, you know, the signs uh, of what we're dealing with and more importantly, the history of it. So this isn't something new. This is something that the medical community uh, had been on the lookout for. Uh, and until obviously the big one hits, as you said, so that you, you're waiting on a hurricane and always wondering what would it be like if a category four hurricane or five hurricane struck and it feels like it's hit now and we're living uh, with with the aftermath? Can you go a bit further now and, and talk to us about why did this virus spread and come so easily, you know, across seas and across the globe more so than its predecessors and then? Perhaps you could talk a bit more about how does the virus itself work? So, very good question. The first fair answer is we don't know why this one officially became so infectious and spread as compared to SARS-1 or the uh, MERS virus that I told you about before. I can tell you this, though, that societies over time are changing. And we have uh, more people traveling very quickly and longer distances. Uh, We have uh, deforestation and we have places where animals now are are interacting with humans more because their habitats are being destroyed by, uh, by, uh, uh, you know, people. uh, uh, Industrialization. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, I, and the third thing that people don't talk about, it may be climate change. There may be animals that used to stay in certain places that are now having to move because of climate change. All of these things, I think, have played a role in why this one got away from us as compared to the other ones. How much each played a role, nobody knows. The people that do that for a living have to look back and see why this one got away from this. But if you can imagine, if you're in this seafood market in Wuhan, China, and you get exposed and infected, right across the street is a train station where you walk across the street and get in the train with literally hundreds of thousands of people, some of them going to the airport to get on an airplane to come to to San Francisco in a 12-hour flight. And so you can see in just a small period of time, a small group of people that were infected with this virus can spread a contagious virus to people next to them. And now all of a sudden you have a large number of people in a short period of time that are potential potential vectors for spreading this disease process along. And so I think all of those things have played a role. People are going to look at the virus itself to see why this one may be more contagious to the other ones at this point in time. But I think because of our environment and our society, I think viruses such as this are going to be more easily spread very quickly uh, throughout the world because of this. The virus itself is not much different on how it attacks the humans. It primarily gets in uh, through breathing it in through your nose and your mouth. And that's where the primary infection sets in, just like a common cold. It does the same thing, and it affects primarily the lung tissue, uh, which is why people can get severe lung infections with this. It may attach itself to other parts of the body. There are certain receptors in the body where the virus may attach to, and we're just learning about whether or not this is important as far as the disease process is concerned. But primarily it works uh, by getting in through your nose and your mouth and setting up shop there, and then and some people spreading down to the lungs and causing pneumonia. That's the primary disease process that we're seeing at this point in time. Got it. And so it's been described as a, upper respiratory disease, um, what, what does that mean exactly? Well, it, it means primarily the patients that get sick will feel sniffles, it'll feel a sore throat, and a cough and shortness of breath. So symptoms in your nose, symptoms in your throat, and symptoms in your lung and your chest are primarily the symptoms that, pe- that people will feel. And unfortunately, that makes it easier to spread because if it's in your nose and your throat and your chest, and you cough, and that's where all of the virus is growing, it makes potential spread more easily because coughing or sneezing on someone can spread. If you sneeze in your hands like people do uh, and shake hands, it'll be another vector potentially where people can easily get infected. And so its location of growth makes it easier to spread from one person to another. So in terms of spread, you know, one of the, sort of harrowing things about this particular virus is the asymptomatic carriers, people who apparently are infected, but they show no symptoms. Could you explain why that might be? And and is that normal? Like, do people carry the influenza virus, for example, show no symptoms and pass it on? And what what's the implication of that happening with this virus? So that's a very good question. Uh, the 
Talk about flu because people will know the flu. The flu can be spread by asymptomatic carriers, meaning you can spread the flu potentially before you actually get sick and know you have it. The asymptomatic spread of flu, Albert, we think is a shorter period of time because you get sick more quickly once you get exposed to the flu, perhaps to the point that you may not easily spread because you're too sick actually to go out. It looks like with this particular virus, the asymptomatic spreading period may be a longer period of time and that people that actually don't get very sick with it can spread the disease process, even mild symptoms. I mean, a lot of people go to work with what they think they have a cough or a cold and you can spread the disease process before you get that cough and cold symptoms during that process. And there's a possibility that you can even spread it after you get better. We don't know the answer to that, but we do know that patients still exhibit viral replication even after people get better from the disease process. And so how contagious you are is not entirely clear because a fair question would be, okay, I have the virus. I'm not that sick, uh, but I do have it and I'm feeling better. When can I go out? When am I not infectious to my coworkers? And the answer to that question is we're not exactly sure, but it may be up to two weeks or so where the virus may still be shed. The other thing that we found uh, that's a little bit different with this virus is that the virus has been found intact in feces, in stools, uh, which is a little unusual for coronavirus. Uh, and the question is whether or not it can be spread what we call fecal oral, meaning can it be spread from your stool to, uh, to someone else that did not wash their hands as well as they should. Uh, so all of those things are in play. I can tell you that the contagion or the ability for this virus to spread from one person to another, however it is, seems to be much more than influenza, which is why we're seeing so many people in random places when you do get tested, test positive. And so we've got some work to do uh, as epidemiologists and virologists to tell people when it's safe that they can't spread the disease. And we don't know the exact answer to that. The, uh, the general consensus now is that if you have the virus, you're probably infectious for another two weeks and you should stand down until then. But whether or not you're infectious past that, we don't know the answer to that. And that's gonna be a work in progress. Because what your podcast listeners need to realize is all of this is new to us. Yeah. December 27th is the first time anybody outside of China heard anything about this. And so we are learning on the fly. And when I see my first patient, I'm seeing my first patient now, I'm learning. I've never seen a patient with this to know what to yeah. expect. I've read yeah. books, yeah. I've seen things, you've heard things, but it's a learning curve for all of us. And so when you see different pieces of information out there, some of it is because it's going to change because we just learned something today that we didn't know yesterday, like this fecal thing. Nobody knew an answer to, nobody knew that until somebody decided to check feces or stool and saw the virus and said, oh my God, where did that come from? What is this about? And so, um, you know, we've got a learning curve to do. The good news is we've got some very, very smart infectious disease scientists in the United States that are working hard on this, many of which I work with in the HIV epidemic, so I know what they're all about. And so they're working hard to try to figure these questions out, but you got to understand 
that they're also pulled it all in. They're trying to get infrastructure down. They're trying to find medicines. They're trying to find what the disease process is. They're trying to get the test out to us. They're trying to keep us informed. And there's not a bunch of us out there. I equate ourselves to Jedi Knights for those that are Star Wars fans out there. We're trying to keep peace in the universe, but there's not a whole bunch of us out there to fight a war. And where we're trying and trying to get all of these things done, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult. And so uh, you have to be careful about, you have to understand that concept and be careful about who you listen to and what you hear as to what the reality is. I see all kinds of things. Pop. Oh, we got this new test or we got this new treatment. Uh, you know, all these things are going to pop up in the midst of this information war, if one of a better word. And you have to be very cautious about what you are listening to as adequate vetting that it makes some sense to figure out what to do with your life. Yeah, so Doc, I have to ask this. I mean, still talking about the infection, and you, you might not have an answer, but I do want your reaction to it. We heard last week a bunch of uh, young people were still off at spring break and crowding beaches in Florida, also in some parts of Texas, uh, Georgia as well. If a young person, you know, I don't know, 25 year old contracts the virus, are never symptomatic, never get tested, what's the potential that the virus might just linger around with them for, let's say, a month, and we just never know? And what are the implications of having several of those cases out there? The implications of it are that this disease process is going to continue not for just two weeks or four weeks for several months because of just what you're saying all of these trojan horse people that are well enough to run around and do these things can spread it to people that don't have it uh, and that is a very very big concern that we have and that gets back to eventually needing to probably test almost everyone to make sure we don't have the capacity to test enough people now that we're even sick, so we're trying to do that. But, uh, but it's a very big concern that people are spreading the disease asymptomatic, such as young people. And I, I make the plea that everyone is saying on TV, and the one thing that is true is that we have to have, until we know, social distancing. When you have two people together, a group of people together, especially young people that may be asymptomatic with the viral process, uh, they have to distance themselves from people. You have to assume that everyone is positive at this point in time if you don't know that you're negative. And you need to con uh, conduct your business just like that. I went to the grocery store today just to get some orange juice and standing in line, I made sure that I was six feet behind the person uh, in front of me and the person behind me was six feet, even though they looked just fine. And, and we have to assume that to stop that spread until we can get an idea of who's infected. All of that's in play. And the right answer to the people in the podcast is we don't know the answer to any of that until we have a better idea of harder numbers about are people contagious a week or two afterward? How many people are contagious? Who's positive? Who's negative? And that's a very, very important concept. Mm -hmm. Well, perhaps a question that you do uh, have an answer for, how are we attacking this disease when, when patients are receiving 
treatment scientifically? How are we trying to attack the virus and what kind of medication are, are patients being offered? So also a very good question. And the answer to that is no one knows. The first thing that the podcast um, listeners need to understand is there's only one viral infection in the history of mankind that's treatable with a pill, and that's hepatitis C. No other viral infection has a medicine that will cure it in the history of mankind. It either runs its course, it becomes latent in a person that stays there forever, or perhaps you can take some medicine to make it not quite as severe. But to cure it, we don't have the ability to do so. And so when we're looking at our treatment programs, we don't have a historical track record that we do very good against viruses. What we try to do with medications is slow the virus down so the body has time to catch up and take care of the disease process itself. For example, if people have the flu, we give you something called Tamiflu. Tamiflu does not kill the virus, but it slows its replication down so the body doesn't have to fight off so many viruses. You you got my understanding with that? Absolutely. Okay. So what we're trying to do with the medications are finding medicines to slow the virus down. So that's going to come on two fronts. The first front are investigational medicines that may have activity against the virus. And there is a, a one called uh, remdesivir that Gilead has There's going into study right now. The problem with investigational medicines are they're not manufactured yet in any scale to be able to use them even if they work. So if remdesivir looks like it works, the ability to get it out to millions of people quickly is simply not gonna be there because the drug's not made because it's experimental. And so when we see that, and we have a lot of sick people, we try to go see, are there any drugs out there already that may have activity against the virus to slow it down? And the answer to that question is maybe. The problem is, when you try to look at these medicines, you can't tell if they work or don't work because people are using them randomly out in the communities. They use them in China because people are so sick, and they just gave them to people in hopes that they would work. But when you do study, when you do treatment like that, it's not that it's wrong to do it. You just can't pull scientific information enough to say, hey, I need to do this or I shouldn't or this will or this won't work. For example, one of the HIV methods I've worked with for years is called Kaletra. It's been on the market forever. And Kaletra looks like it blocks a specific part of the coronavirus uh, life cycle, that it should be able to stop the virus in its tracks. And so I say, oh, wow, man, that's the drug we need to use for everybody. If it stops in its tracks, it won't be any big deal. And we're all going to be good. Well, they did this study in China with people to see if it helped. And the bottom line with the study in 144 people, it didn't help at all. Hmm. They say, well, why is that? And when people looked at it, the reason why is when you take the Kaletra in your body, you can't get enough Kaletra in your system in order to be able to overcome the virus. And so while it looked like it worked well on paper, it didn't work in the person because you couldn't get the medicine to the virus. You follow me? And so, And so the treatments that look like they work in the laboratory yeah. may not work in the patient. And so I think your, your uh, listeners have seen this, how should I say it nicely, discussion 
on TV between President Trump and Dr. Fauci about a medicine called hydroxychloroquine. Yes. Hydroxychloroquine would be a perfect medicine to work for people uh, with this particular virus because one, it's been around for 70 years. Two, it's cheap. It's about 25 cents a pill. And three, it blocks an important part of the life cycle of uh, the coronavirus. And so on paper, it looks like a great medicine to use. In some studies in France, it actually looks like it may work. And so you hear two things on TV. One, this is going to be a game changer. This is going to be our, this is going to be the medicine and everything's going to be all right. But then you hear Dr. Fauci come and say, well, wait a second. Uh, we hope it's going to work, but all we have is a few reports that it might work. And until we figure out if it works or not, we shouldn't be giving this medicine to everybody that has this virus until we know, because you can cause sometimes more harm than good. And so the attack, if you will, has to be one in which we use medications that look like they may work, but in the hands of people that can watch and see if it works and to report back to the community, yes, this looks great. No, it doesn't look great. Or it might look great in this group of people, but it doesn't look great in this other group of people. And that's right now where I think that we're standing. And this is back to, do we have enough people that know how to do that to be able to do that at the bedside of the patients? And the answer to that question is unfortunately, no, we don't have enough people to say, hey, let me let me look at this and watch this patient very closely to see what the benefit and what the risk is at this point in time. And we don't have enough to, enough people to do that. And that's the frustrating thing about not being prepared for a pandemic like this to say we have these medicines on the shelf. Here's where we're going to try to use it very quickly and know in a month or so, whether or not it looks beneficial to people. And so we've got a lot of targets uh, that we're looking at and people are looking at, but we've got to, uh, you know, we've got to do it on some rational basis to see uh, to see what's going to happen and, and try to hopefully uh, have an effect. The other thing that's interesting about this virus and how people respond to viruses is part of the process of trying to get people well has to do with slowing down the virus. The other part of it is some people's um, some people aren't doing well because their body is over responding to the to the infection. In other words, your immune system, because you've never seen this before, is trying to fight off the infection. Well the good news is it's fighting off the infection. The bad news it is killing your good tissue with the bad. And so one of the treatment programs is to try to turn off the immune system so you don't get this over response. This is where it gets very tricky because if that's what's going on, you want to turn off the immune response so it stops damaging your good tissue, right. but you don't want to turn it off enough that it's not responding to the virus that you have. Right. And so if we call those immunomodulators. They're medicines that we use for uh, lupus, and rheumatoid arthritis and things like this that are immunomodulators because some of the disease process, especially in younger people, may be an over-exuberance of the immune system. And so trying to put this whole cocktail together about how you balance these things out is um, it's an art sometimes and not a science. And unfortunately, we've got to do it in such a short period of time that we've got to make important decisions 
in people's lives about how to put these cocktails, if you will, together that are going to be in the best interest of the patient. And, and that's what I'm spending a lot of my time on when somebody comes in sick. How, what do I give them? Do I give them anything because they're sick? You want to give them something, but you don't want to do any harm either. And that's part of what we're trying to do. And then I'm trying to organize that response so I can get back to people throughout the country. Hey, you know what? Try this. I was, it worked very well. Hey, I did that too. And here's how it worked for me. Here's the dose I used a lot of life. Or don't do this because things can get worse at this point in time. So that is, uh, that's where we are with trying to get the treatment program. People are working on a vaccine. The vaccine is not going to help with this, this particular epidemic. The time the vaccine comes out, it's probably going to be past the time it's going to help with this. It may help us understand more about making a vaccine so this doesn't happen again. But for this particular epidemic, I think it's not going to be here in a timely fashion. The other thing you got to remember is even if we have a vaccine, will people take it? Only 49% of people got a flu vaccine this year, despite the flu killing 35,000 people. So killing 35,000 people didn't excite people enough in the United States to go get a flu vaccine. You have the people that are non-vaccineers that don't want to take vaccines for anything. And so simply having an effective vaccine may not be the answer if enough people in the United States don't take the vaccine. You follow me with that? So I, I do. And, and I'm guilty as charged. Uh, I didn't take the flu vaccine this year. Uh, as a matter of fact, I've never taken the flu vaccine. So it is. Well, and, and, and therein lies the issue. If the vaccine is there, people don't take it. I haven't helped anyone. And so while people are people are waiting for a vaccine and this is going to be OK, it's not going to be OK because of how we as a society have decided to do uh, you know, to, to do this. We can't force people in our society to do vaccines. That's why we had the measles outbreaks that you saw throughout the United States. And so it's, it, it's, it, I say that to say the only way to effectively deal with this epidemic and the next epidemic is to have a societal response. I can't fix this. Dr. Fauci on TV can't fix this. Your local governments can't fix this. The society has to sit down and say, okay, we didn't do too well with this. What are we going to do to prepare for the next time? So when coronavirus three comes three years from now, God forbid, that we push a button and everybody goes to their stations and knows what to do, that we're prepared to deal with this. And my concern is yes today, but unfortunately what tomorrow is going to bring. And we have as a society have an organized approach and everybody gets on board to do what needs to be done so we're not doing this piecemeal like we're, like we're doing. Uh, for, for example, something simple. If we have an epidemic like this, do the schools need to close? But you can't close a school in Fifth Ward and not close the school in River Oaks. It doesn't make any sense. You either close the schools or you don't close the schools. I don't know if you should or not. That's past my pay grade to answer, but society needs to say, we're going to close the schools when we have this kind of thing coming to be prepared. Yeah. Uh, it's just like taking your shoes off at the airport. Everybody takes your shoes off at the airport to go through the screener. I mean, how many people, how many bombs you find in the shoes? Not too many, I don't think. But we as a society have decided that's important enough to do so we will do it so we won't have a problem, albeit 
a small risk, uh, you know. So that's what we have to do as a society and, and have an organized and not a piecemeal response. Yeah, unless you have TSA pre-check where you don't have to take your shoes off. Well, right? exactly. <laughs> but my belt always goes off. It doesn't do me any good. I got to take it off anyway. <laughs> You know, uh, and you, you are absolutely right. You talk about decisions that we have to take as a society. And I think one of the things that we're as a society having to reconcile is what measures or to what lengths are we willing to go to try to curb, uh, this outbreak? Uh, I recently uh, got a report that said that a group of uh, hospital CEOs from Texas uh, had a conference call, and in that call, they discussed uh, some of the potential outlook for what is likely to happen with this pandemic going forward in Texas. Uh, in a worst case scenario, where if we don't continue to take these aggressive measures, they estimate we could have 600,000 uh, patients infected over the next three months. Uh, in a scenario where we maintain social distancing over the next three months, they estimate that could get up to 250,000 infected people. And that if we went into shelter in place uh, over the next three months, we could keep infections under 100,000. Uh, how do you react to that? Well, the way I react to it is, these are all speculative numbers and no one knows because we don't have the denominator of the numbers of people infected or a denominator on the numbers of likely people infected. And so when you do any modeling, you're only as good as the numbers that you put in. And we don't know the numbers that put in. But for me, no matter how many numbers you put, put in there, good or bad, there's going to be a high percentage of people that will get infected and a percentage of those people that will get sick enough to have to use medical services. And so our job as physicians, clinicians, and healthcare professionals is to put people in a position to have those numbers as low as possible. We as, we as uh, physicians have to plan for the worst and hope for the best. And hoping for the best is keeping people apart enough that people that are infected or potentially infected are not in a position to spread the disease to make those numbers as low as possible. I think people look at these numbers and say, yeah, those low numbers are not a big deal and I have to worry about it. But we have to worry about the society because the numbers can be as high, um, higher than what we would like. For example, I don't understand why Italy is so bad and Russia is so good. I mean, why is that? Why didn't I mean, they have the people there, the same numbers of people and things like this? And we don't understand why. And so how epidemics happen in certain places depends on what the society is. And that's why you can't tell um, which numbers Rassi make any sense. Are we going to be like Italy? Are we going to be like South Korea? Uh, and it's not just the numbers of tests we do. The disease is going haywire in Italy for reasons that none of us as physicians understand because our health our healthcare infrastructures are not as dissimilar. And they may have a little bit of older population, but not enough to have the numbers of deaths that they're seeing. Uh, and so what we need to do as a society is plan for Italy and hope for South Korea, no matter what modeling you look at. And what we need to do to do that is simply 
what we have is the social distancing, hygiene, 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 and testing and an infrastructure to be able to get patients that have it in a position where they don't spread it because we still have that as an issue because we're sending people home with the, with the known disease process. So in terms of long-term outlook, uh, is COVID-19 sort of here to stay? What, what, where does this, what, what, you know, if we said maybe after 18 months, does, how does this virus go away and not be with us going forward or, or what's the likelihood of that happening? So I think COVID-19 is going to go away eventually. How quick it's going to go away, we don't know. We've never seen one of the coronaviruses infect numbers of people this magnitude. So how quick it dies out, we don't know. Is it going to die out more when the hot weather comes? People don't know. Is it going to be another surge because asymptomatic people are infecting another group of people? We don't know the answer to to that, unfortunately, either. I'm playing the long game with this. I think it's going to be around with us for a while because it looks like it can hang around enough to infect people that have not been infected. And so that may be an issue over time. I think as time goes by, we're going to be smarter to be able to combat it. Hopefully some of these medicines that we have can be not only treatment, but preventative and people that, that have it. Uh, we'll have testing. So if you do look like you're getting sick, rather than waiting for you to, uh, if you, whether the way to get sick, we'll have medication to prevent it. And I think all those things are going to make a downturn. But my concern is, is coronavirus going to be like flu? We're going to have another one come in a year or two, and we're going to have this same issue because while you may be immune to COVID-19, you won't be immune to COVID-22 unless we get a universal coronavirus vaccine that people will take and that will prevent these these things from coming back out. But because it can recombine with animals, just like the flu, we may not be able to get our universal coronavirus vaccine. We don't have a universal flu vaccine after years and years of trying to find one that will take care of the flu no matter what. We don't have one yet either. And even the ones that we have sometimes are not very effective. And so we have to find this. But society has to invest in the healthcare infrastructure in order for us to be able to find it. Uh, What's happened, I've just got to make this statement. What's happened is uh, people are looking to try to get healthcare as cheap as possible. And the healthcare industry has moved from a calling to a business. And the focus on the science and the treatments have to do, quite frankly, with what will make more money. You'll see more money put into obesity drugs than you do to pandemic drugs because you're gonna make more money on the obesity drugs. Hmm. And this is back to society saying, well, wait a second. Yeah, we need some obesity drugs for sure, but we need to reserve some of our funds to invest in people that take care of sick people that try to deal with these pandemics and don't essentially sort of kick us to the curb because it is going to be more devastating to society if we don't invest in the infrastructure for what it takes to take care of people that have and will become ill in our society in the future. Yeah, Doc, those are very uh, poignant observations and important, 
message to get across so that people really understand and have a better context of how our healthcare system works and what the different motivations are and why things work the way they do. Uh, you did mention immunity. There's this idea of herd immunity. And if you could just touch up a little bit about this, this idea of herd immunity, and that might be one of the ways that we perhaps overcome this coronavirus. So herd immunity is the concept that if you vaccinate enough people, even if one person gets it, they're not likely to spread it to the next person. That next person will be immune to the virus. And so I'm saying people don't get the flu vaccines. There may be enough people to get the flu vaccines to spread, to slow down the spread of the disease. For example, if you're in the grocery store and you have the flu, but the person behind you got the flu vaccine, you're probably not going to spread that virus to that person because that person is immune to it. Yeah. And therefore, if you don't give it to that person, that person won't spread it to the people in line behind them. Yeah. So the concept of herd immunity is if you get enough antibodies in the community, the virus will eventually die out because it won't not make, make the jump from one person to the next and another person is immune. Yeah. And so I'm saying we need to make sure people get vaccines. It's probably a critical number that it takes to be able to get enough uh, I would say it, people that are immune to be able to not spread it. And it may be over time we're creating our own herd immunity because people are making antibodies to it at this, uh, you know, right now so that, uh, so that they're not going to be infectious to another person or even if somebody has it asymptomatic, they won't spread it because that's so, so we may be creating our own vaccinations if you will, because so many people have it. But that's the idea of herd immunity that we're, uh, that we're going to have enough uh, uh, enough people resistant to it, having antibodies to it, they'll be able to uh, to pre prevent the disease process from spreading. The other thing that they're working, this is back to therapeutics, and Dr. Fauci talked about this on the podium, uh, there may be a way if enough people get antibodies to be able to harvest those antibodies and give it to people that are in, that are sick to be able to try to stem the disease in, in, in patients. We don't have enough people to have antibodies now, but they're going to start looking for those to see if that may be an appropriate treatment. And that's one of the more exciting ways that we're going to be looking for treatments in the future. But we got to have enough people to have antibodies to survive the infection or to, to get that. So that's another therapeutic approach that, uh, that people are going to be looking toward. I keep, I keep bringing up Dr. Tony Fauci. There's a lot of people running around with a lot of information, but Tony Fauci, I know personally, we worked diligently with in the 80s uh, with the HIV epidemic, is a brilliant clinician, a brilliant virologist, and a fantastic researcher. And what he says goes. When you're listening to all these things on TV and you wonder if what's real or what's not, Tune everybody else out until Tony Fauci walks up and open your eyes and ears and listen to what he says. He has our best interest at heart and he knows what he's doing. He's been there and done these things before. And when I have the TV on, everybody else gets tuned out other than what he has to say. And he's, he's our, uh, he's our leader out here and he's the one, if you need to hear what's going on, he is the one to listen to. Uh, for the information that you need that has been appropriately vetted and makes sense. And he tells it like it is. He'll tell you what's real and he'll tell you what we don't know. And that's important to know also. 
Yeah, excellent, excellent closing uh, statement, so to speak. I want to wrap up with a couple of questions related to your uh, your profession, however, who, who are, what types of doctors are sort of on the front line of helping us, uh, deal with this? If you can just kind of describe the different specialties that are, you know, generally involved. So the two specialties are going to be there to take care of sick people are going to be, uh, infectious diseases specialists, as well as lung specialists, pulmonary doctors and critical care Doctors, they're going to be the one. They're going to be taking care of the very sick people in the hospital. On an outpatient basis, that's a very good question uh, because we don't have a very good infrastructure for taking care of very sick people on an outpatient basis. Uh, we have very good family practitioners in our community, but they're primarily uh, there to take care of uh, the well people in offices and not really sick people in their homes. At this, uh, and, and that's an issue as far as manpower. We're going to have to train up, if you will, uh, primary care physicians that will be able to manage these patients on an outpatient basis for us. But in order to be able to train them up, we have to tell them what to do. And I'm not exactly sure what to tell them to do uh, until we get some more information. For example, God forbid if you came down with it, you had 102 degree temperature and you weren't feeling well but not sick enough to go to the hospital, I would tell you to go home. But somebody's going to have to keep an eye on you at home uh, and to tell you what to do and what not to do. You need to be in quarantine, quote unquote. Well, what does that mean? How did, what did I do with the kids? What did I do with the uh, dog? What did I do with my wife? Uh, who's going to bring me food? All those things have to have some organized response. When do I get my next test? Well, I can't get any test right now to get one test. You know, I barely get one test and I've got to get two other tests to get you out of isolation and quarantine. And so I say that to say we've got to train up a lot of people to be able to manage people outside the hospital. There's no way that the infrastructure of medicine can accommodate large numbers of people that to come into the to the hospital. You don't have the isolation rooms, we don't have the personnel. And so we're gonna have to figure out how to do that uh, on an out on an outpatient basis. And that's also gonna be a work in progress, but it's not fair for me not to tell the primary care physician what to do. The thing I think it is gonna change, and it's actually the one thing that's changing in my office, it's gonna open up the whole science uh, and treatment structure of telemedicine. People have talked about it. We primarily use it in rural communities where people can't get to the doctor because they're so far away. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's the way it's been used so far. And we haven't really done it in cities like this, but it's going to be a way that we'll be able to reach out to people, not having them have to leave their houses because they're because they're sick, but also not coming to a physician's office sick with coronavirus sitting in the waiting room, putting not just the patients in the waiting room in jeopardy, but the staff in the, in the, in the, in the offices in jeopardy. And so being able to do this in a telemedicine format is going to be, I think, beneficial. It may revolutionize the way that we, uh, that we, give, that we give our medical treatments, even if sit in urban settings like we have have in Houston and uh, the government has opened up the ability for regular physicians to be able to do this. It wasn't there before, but they were able to do it. It's going to be something we're going to be experimenting with because I think it will be a way for us to be able to more effectively deliver care without having people 
uh, putting themselves or others in harm's way coming out. And I guess that's the final thing I need to say. Uh, and we didn't really talk about this, but there the we, we talked about the numbers of hospital beds, we talked about the numbers of ventilators, all those things are important, but what we don't talk about are the numbers of physicians and healthcare personnel to be able to take care of patients. Mm. We talk about we need 50,000 ventilators, we don't have 50,000 infectious and critical care doctors to run those ventilators. That's not even talking about a nurse, a uh, uh, x-ray technician, someone to clean the rooms, uh, the respiratory therapist coming out. And some of those people are getting sick right now, too, which means, God willing, they'll survive, but they can't come out and take care of patients for four to six weeks. And so we're going to have another manpower shortage, if you want, in order, in order to try to deal with the epidemic. We're calling physicians out of retirement and nurses out of retirement. Those people are 60s in their 60s and 70s. They're the highest risk people for getting this disease process. We're asking to come out and help. And they're going to come out and help because that's what their call is, but we're putting them in harm's way uh, in order maybe to try to deliver care. So that's back to this social distancing. People that don't social distance are not just putting people around them in jeopardy. They're putting healthcare professionals, first responders, and our families in jeopardy too. When we're trying to go out and fix what you're creating, you're putting ourselves in harm's way too. And, and that's just not fair to anyone in society. And we've got to be able to support and back people that are out there on the front lines. They're essentially putting their lives on the line until we get this fixed, that we give them all the support that we need and to try to keep the numbers as far down as we can. Yeah, yeah. Just essential uh, remarks for you to add. Definitely, again, adding further perspective to all of this. Uh, one last question that I'll just ask is for, for, for someone, hopefully a young person who's listening to this and, and maybe being inspired to want to pursue medicine, uh, or other fields, uh, around, uh, you know, healthcare, what parting words would you offer to them? Study, come out here and help me tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> We need to, you know, I've, I've, I've spoken a lot about this before this pandemic. There are not a lot of infectious disease physicians coming behind me to deal with the HIV epidemic. There's an epidemic of resistant bacterial infections in the hospital. We're running out of antibiotics. Now we have this pandemic. There's nobody right now, There's I shouldn't say no one, there's not a large number of people to pass the baton to. And we need people that want to do something for society that is going to be a positive benefit to come learn train and to come pick up that baton we need the best and the brightest in our communities to keep us well because at the end of the day if we don't have our health we don't have anything no matter how what kind of job you have or what kind of car you drive if you're sick none of that makes any difference and this particular virus is an equal opportunity killer. It doesn't make you if you're poor, you're rich, if you live in California, Utah, if you're black, white, gay, it doesn't make any difference. It's equal opportunity and we need the best and brightest of society to come and help us fight and importantly come and help us figure out how to prevent things from happening in the future. So come on down. If you want to spend a day with me, I'll 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 tell you what you need to know and the next day you're gonna be working. Get your tennis shoes on. We'll be ready. 
Excellent. Excellent. Doc, thank you so much for your time. This has been incredible. Uh, I really uh, could not thank you enough for taking the time amidst all that you have going on. But I think this is essential information that we need to get out there to people. And, and I'm truly hopeful that people will listen to this, be inspired, pass it on to others, and hopefully help us start all collectively adjusting how we're responding to this threat and how we're helping each other going forward. Uh, thank you for your time, uh, the listening, the listeners of the My Brother podcast. I look forward to bringing you uh, more episodes with sharing insightful information that hopefully helps us all improve our lives going forward.